Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti. Welcome to Yoga Land. Hi, Jason. Andrea, can you just not get anyone else to come on this no, podcast? No, nobody wants to do it. I'm just, everyone's like, here's the thing. We can't compare to Jason. That's oh, 12. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, I'm having a low self-esteem moment. So you really, you really did that right. I love you. I know. Well, always you know the much. right things to say. Yeah. No, I do have people coming up. I'm really excited to talk to them. I'm going to be talking to Dia Grant again soon about meditation studies. I'm going to be talking to Kwame Sams. Again, he's been on the podcast in the past, but he just joined Glow, as you know, and I thought it would be so nice to revisit and have a chat with him. Yeah. I haven't talked to him in probably two years. Wow. Yeah. yeah since COVID times. Yeah. And then I had someone else, do, 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 who I'm blanking. Someone amazing. I feel awesome. so bad. Don't I'm worry so about sorry. It. No, I, I kind of threw you that curveball. Yeah, you not threw a me a curveball. Yes. Okay. So today we're going to continue on our theme that we've been on, which is teaching beginners. Yes. Good theme for January. Yes. Beginners are coming into your classes, whether they identify themselves as such or not. And we just uh, launched your newest course, which is Mastering the Art of Teaching Beginners. It's an online course. If you haven't heard my spiel before, you can go learn all about it and register at learn.jasonyoga.com slash beginners. And we've got a whole bunch of people signed up who are excited and we're excited. And I don't know, it's always nice to um, start a new group with a new group, isn't it? It is always super nice. Mm -hmm. I feel, I was thinking about this earlier, I feel that, because you and I were talking about creativity, mm -hmm. right? And for me, it is so deeply satisfying and necessary to create and organize content. Like, it's just what I love to do. And when I do it and people participate in it and benefit from it, I get really excited and it makes me want to do even more. Yeah. It's, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's a really nice cycle. It's a really gratifying cycle. I remembered sure. my other guest that's coming up. Oh, okay. I'm going to give them a little Jenny Wilkinson. Oh, nice. Who is yeah. opening a yoga yeah, studio yeah, yeah. in London. So, really excited to talk to her. I want to uh, interview Jenny because when Jenny interviewed me on her <laughs> podcast, she had it in for me. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, well, she's so smart. Well, she's a journalist, she's right? So she, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's really smart and she's in addition to many other things, she's a journalist. Yeah. So she wanted to get the some some hard hitting questions. Really? We'll have yeah. to talk about that later. Yeah. But um yeah, I can't wait can't wait to talk to her because we are gonna go obviously you're gonna teach at her studio when it opens in London. In and July. I'm probably gonna be teaching yeah. too. So yeah. I'm super, super excited about that. All right, but back to beginners. Today we're gonna talk about techniques for um Getting across essential philosophical concepts to beginners, which is so important, and I would imagine really challenging to do. This is actually what was on my mind was, you know, in our last conversation, we talked about, I think there were maybe nine of the most essential asana concepts that I want to teach beginners. And I put in there the caveat that when I say I want to teach these things to beginners, they're relevant to everyone at all levels, at all times. But when I'm thinking about beginners, it's just easier for me to start at the beginning and to, to kind of think like, okay, if I was going to teach someone from the ground up, these are the technical asana principles that I would like to share. Like, this is critical. Right? Yeah. 
So there are also philosophical themes and concepts that from the beginning that I want and endeavor to teach and share. But exactly as Jesus said, it's a lot harder. Um, and I don't think it's just harder for me. I think that it is always harder to teach more subtle, nuanced, and maybe metaphysical things than it is to teach people where to put their foot in downward-facing dog, right? So I, so all of these things that I want to share, I don't share them to our audience as if these are easy. Mm -mm. Like, like, oh, somehow we just say these things and they're easy to communicate. Um, these are all things that... Uh, like anything I teach, they're, um, they're endeavors. These are some of the concepts that I think that we can articulate directly to our students, we can say directly to our students. Um, and, and they're things that are going to be repeated. They're going to be these repeatable themes that as teachers, we're going to come back to time and time and time again. Right. And to be honest, some of the next maybe eight concepts or themes are probably going to be easier to teach than others, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is the final, final lead-in that I want to say is we don't have to teach everyone everything. Yeah. So when we ha so I have a, a checklist of the nine this and the eight this. I, what I really encourage people to do is listen and focus on the ones that are most um, that stand out most and are most compelling to you without feeling like you just have to tick all these boxes. Huh. You know, if if I could communicate any of these things to my students, I would feel like I've done a good job. It's a win. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So how do we begin? So I think we begin with maybe the most important, maybe the most important concept, which is that Yoga philosophy is largely comprised of embodied practices. In fact, the vast majority of yoga philosophy is not a set of intellectualizations about the world, but a set of practices in this world to help us have greater clarity about the complexity and the depth of this world. So I think the bottom line is, there isn't really a separation between philosophy and practice. The philosophy is embedded into the practice. And if we just take a time and a moment, and I'll, I'll kind of come back to a couple of these things later, but if we think about the yamas and the niyamas, or if we think about almost anything that Patanjali lays out, he's laying out practices. Nonviolence isn't an intellectual construct. Satya isn't an intellectual construct. Asana, pranayama, pratihara, dharana, dhyana. These are practices. These are things that you're actually doing. And what are you doing them with? You're doing them with your body and mind. That they that there aren't really distinctions. So I think this is this is really key is that the philosophy is not some intellectualized, rarefied air. Right. It's a set of things that you enact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful, I think. And I think actually that's why uh, people are drawn to the philosophy aspect of yoga, because it's it, it's so practical. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like we can actually practice it. We don't have to um, be, uh, like you said, like a rarefied scholar. We don't have to... Um, wrap our brains around 
things that are too esoterically outside of our ability to conceptualize because we can actually start by practicing. Not to say that there isn't the esoteric in yoga. Of course, there is. There is, like, for sure. But where we start is right. very practical. And where you end is very practical, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I wrote this in a, in a little piece, which is, you don't primarily think yoga philosophy. You primarily act upon and practice yoga philosophy. I think this is really important that that we see that yoga philosophy isn't isn't primarily an academic subject to the vast majority of practitioners. Mm-hmm. It is a phenomenal it is a phenomenally interesting academic subject that can be studied um, in the same way that you can study anatomy without focusing on how to actually use it. But when we're focused on learning yoga anatomy as yoga, excuse me, when we're focused on learning yoga philosophy as a yoga student, we're primarily focused on how to actually use it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I like that. The next one really leads right in, which is yoga philosophy is moksha shastra, right? Or liberation teachings. And the essence of these liberation teachings is that you are more than your limited notion of self. Not that you are not yourself, but that you are not limited Mm -hmm. to that notion of self. Mm -hmm. And if you were to think, well, who am I? And you were to start to write an essay about it, you'd probably talk about your background, your beliefs, your family, your interests, your your thoughts, your emotions. And I don't think that a can that like a well-versed contemporary perspective on the yoga tradition would deny that you are those things, but it would, it would articulate that you are not limited to those things. And it would go a step further if we wanted to take it, but that you are supreme ultra conscious beings that have no beginning and no end. Right there is the belief that an intrinsic component of the self is the infinite experience of consciousness, which is difficult for anyone to unpack, let alone me to unpack it in this current moment. But yoga teachings are trying to help you understand that you are not limited to how you see yourself based on your past. It was such a relief to me to learn that concept because you know living only in this iteration can be pretty suffocating at times so for me that was like a huge um re- relief i want to ask you something which maybe outside the scope of this conversation but when you're teaching beginners this concept do you just date it plainly yoga philosophy is a liberation, te- like is moksha shastra liberation teaching? Or- I think the easiest way to do it is to be very practical, which is to help people understand that they will learn and grow. And even within the physical practice of yoga, they are students are likely to be able to do much more in the future than they're currently able to do now, hmm. which is a very material take on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I think if we want to understand that that we are more than our limited notions of self, we start by actually making incremental steps towards that realization. Like 
I realized at some point in my yoga practice that I would actually be able to take my fingertips and touch the floor. I learned in my yoga practice that I would be able to do a certain backbend I never thought I would be able to do. I mean, again, it's a very material thing, but one of the funny things about the human condition is we almost always believe our thoughts to be true, even when they're wrong. Yeah. And the way we think about ourselves is often inaccurate, right? I mean, it's it's usually inaccurate in, in that it doesn't represent the totality of, sure. of who we are and what we can be. It can be really myopic. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that when we start to realize, oh, this thing I thought about myself is not true. Oh, this thing I thought about myself is actually just a self-limiting belief. Oh, this thing I thought about myself uh, is completely misguided and misplaced. And I don't know where this came from, but actually I can do this. And actually I don't need to do that. I am, you know, so I think that when we when we have those little moments, those little small moments of self-realization, that is how we begin to have a, a larger, a larger, more comprehensive sure. realization. We can start to trust the concept. We can trust it's the proof con- of concept, actually. Yeah, it's proof of concept, and it's also proof that, oh, my mind is probably going to continue to do this to me. Right. It's probably going to continue, oh, well, now I can touch my, t- my fingertips to the floor, but I'll never get my palms to the floor. Or... Even the self-limiting, like a a belief that's not just about improvement and gain. So for example, like, oh, now I can do this deeper backbend, but that actually doesn't mean my relationships are better or worse. Like, because we do this a lot to ourselves too, which is we think like, if I do X, then I'll get Y. And in this yoga practice, we start to realize I think a lot of the games that the mind is playing with itself and hopefully we start to see through those and become a little bit more, um, a little bit less of a prisoner of, of our self-limiting beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I think the next one is not something I, I struggle with whether or not to put this in the list. And I think it's the more academic part of me that wanted to put this in the, le- the list and less the practical part of me that wanted to put this in the list. Because in reality, I want teachers to hear this and know this, but I don't think that this is something that overtly you're going to communicate to your beginners because I think it's just, I don't know a scenario where it's going to come up and I don't think it's that practical. Uh, but the point is that yoga philosophy is not homogenous. I think this is really important we understand a a few things, that um, yoga philosophy and the yoga tradition is comprised of countless different subgroups and subgenres. Yoga philosophy and yoga culture is profoundly heterogeneous. It's been influenced by many different things over the millennia. And not only is yoga philosophy not homogenous, but there are incredibly varied and often conflicting belief systems mm-hmm. that exist within the yoga tradition. Yeah. And as part of this, the Yoga Sutra attributed to Patanjali is definitely not the totality 
of the yoga tradition. Yeah, or another way of saying this is yoga philosophy and Patanjali are not synonyms. No. They're not even close to being synonyms. No. Now, that shouldn't take away from the poignancy and the power and the influence of the Yoga Sutra. But I think it's just really important that we don't that we don't just kind of casually equate yoga philosophy equals Patanjali, Patanjali equals yoga philosophy, end of day. Yeah. And this person and the way they interpret it is the is the final statement. Yeah. Right? I just I and the reason I think this is important is I at every bone in my body pushes back against fundamentalism and singular truths, especially when there is a historical record of incredible heterogeny. Yeah. And so I, I just want people to be sensitive to the reality that this is a, a beautiful and complex mosaic and in a way to kind of steer away from teachers or suggestions that it is not. I want to add to that, and I, I I know you agree with this. Stephanie Simon's book, I will find the name of the book. The, the title is escaping me right now. I'll put it on the show notes page. Her last name is spelled S-Y-M-A-N. Stephanie Simon's book and Andrea Jane's book, the first, her first book about yoga. Selling yoga. Selling yoga. Thanks. I'm like, oh my God, that's escaping me too. Both, uh, you know, go into uh, the historical evolution of yoga and and basically kind of the globalization of it. And um, so the history of it, but the more recent history, so I want to say like last hundred years, and both of them point out very adeptly that the infighting between different yoga groups has always existed as well. And I I think that's important to say because it's like we can get very hung. I just see so much so many hangups right now about like, we must teach people that yoga is not just asana. We must deconstruct this narrative. We must do this. We must do that. And that's all well and good. Like you, if you are, have a conviction about yoga that you feel it's important to teach, go for it. But like you said, the, the idea that one person slash system slash idea is fundamentally right over the other this kind of fighting has has existed since yoga has existed what we can see is a history of um across the human spectrum of people having strong opinions yeah um, and identifying strongly with those opinions and projecting those opinions as if they are a singular truth. And I just want to say for the record, I think this is just, I'm just going to put it out there. But in my opinion, like, I do not criticize people who go to yoga, quote unquote, only for the physical, only for asana. Like, that's where they are right now. That might be where they are in this lifetime. That is okay. It's not up to me to make that decision for other people, how they integrate the practices in their life. It's, that's not, that, 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 that's just all I'm going to say about that. I would go so far, or I'm going to be brief about this, or we can really sidetrack this. I would go so far as to say is if one thinks you could only do 
only go to yoga for the physicality of it. You'd actually have to not believe in the teachings of yoga. And you have to not believe in the nervous system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these these things are, these things are so fundamentally entwined. So I agree. The what we identify as the what we identify as the reason we are doing a thing is usually just going to be like the surface motivating factor. But by doing that thing, you are affecting everything. Yep. So. If your motivation is to go to yoga to be more flexible or stronger or because you need a social network, that's fine. That's like that's a motivation. That's legit motivation. But by doing that thing, you are inherently affecting the totality of you. Yeah. And if and if one did not believe that, you'd you'd actually have to not believe into the underlying teachings of yoga. The next, which actually is super interesting to me which is that practicing yoga does not deny or exclude other belief systems. So let's take a moment and let's go back to Patanjali for a moment, right? And kind of mention Patanjali again. And I said a moment ago, Patanjali does not represent the totality of the yoga tradition or yoga philosophy. But let's, let's look at him for a moment as an example. It is very clear in his usage, I shouldn't say it's very clear. Um, it, it is plausible. Actually, it's pretty clear. In his usage of Ishvara, right? As he writes about Ishvara Pranadana, surrender. That Ishvara can represent different things. But Ishvara can also most commonly represent a non-denominational um, godhead. And you can put whatever face you want on that godhead. So if you are a devotee of Vishnu, if you are a Vishnuvite, then that encouragement of Ishvara Pranadana is a surrender to Vishnu. If you are a Shaivite, right, if you are dedicated to Shiva, then the representation the, then the figurehead that you would put in place of of Ishvara is Shiva, mm -hmm. in which case all those teachings still apply, and the that which you are surrendering to is Shiva. It seems pretty clear that Patanjali is saying, "Bring your faith along." He's not saying this, and and this is a an and set your faith aside and now follow me. Hmm. It seems pretty clear that he is he is speaking directly to put in a modern way to to members of multiple parties and saying bring your party with you. Hmm. These teachings are they transcend or they don't transcend. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But these these teachings and these practices are inclusive, not exclusive of your existing belief system. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that being said, not all faiths and religions and belief systems uh, feel the same way, mm -hmm. right? Right, right. right? It's, not, it's not a it reciprocal. It's not always reciprocal, right? right. right? And, and would, there's definitely many examples of that, right? But in terms of the yoga tradition, and I, I think one of the many reasons, one of the many reasons that it is 
in a modern setting so accessible to people with different religious and philosophical backgrounds is because many of the teachings of the yoga tradition can be applied to believers of a certain faith without negating the underlying teachings of that faith. Right. And also some of us that are without a faith. Mm-hmm. Right? So the yoga teaching the yoga philosophy also appeals very well in parts because it doesn't demand a specific godhead. Um and so for people who are not theistic and for people that don't have other faiths or religious traditions that they resonate with, the yoga philosophical systems can offer a sense of spiritual depth and guidance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely been the case for me. Yeah. All right. And then, so for the next one, this is something that is so helpful. Like I said earlier, these are all have been helpful for me is you are not your thoughts or your feelings. Yes. <laughs> so this kind of takes us back, and, and I think we, we're now entering the phase of things that I think are more overtly easy to teach, right? Like a lot of those things that we've talked about, in, in a way, those are the preconditions. Like I think those are the things as teachers that we want to have some clarity around. And then now we're starting to get a little bit more into – hey, these are kind of some of the takeaways. Like these are maybe some of the things we we very overtly share. And this, this, this process of understanding that you are not your thoughts or your feelings, let's start with A, that doesn't mean we are denying the impact or the importance or the validity of your thoughts and feelings. But what these traditions teach us is that the thoughts and the feelings are transient experiences produced essentially by our experience of consciousness and our biochemistry. And a way to easily think about this is the television is not what's on the television. The iPhone is not the app that's on the phone. You aren't the feeling. You are that which feels the feeling. You aren't the thought you are that which experiences the thoughts. So you are much more macro, right? You are this like macro witness. Witness, mm-hmm. this macro organism that is the witness to those transient phenomena. Mm-hmm. So you are always there and you are always witnessing the impermanence of the thought and the feeling and often unfortunately identifying mm-hmm. as the thought or the feeling. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, that's, that's the important key here is that we tend, and a simple way of thinking about this, we tend to be prisoners of the moment. You know, as a species, we tend to, when we have a strong feeling, feel like this is what I am. This is who I am. Everyone in the world caused this. I caused this. The universe led to this moment. I am this. And it always is this. And it's sad, but it's also like, a laughable mistake because it's because the sensory experience of thought and feeling is profoundly um, transient and you aren't the passing of the feeling. You are the conscious being that experiences it. Right. This is key. It's the mystery of consciousness. Yes. Which is like you could spend your whole lifetime thinking about it, 
unraveling it, going around. It, it, it's it's huge, and it's I don't know. It's it's like a very beautiful part of the practice. And consciousness is still a an unbelievably not understood phenomenon. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have some of the most amazing mathematicians and neuroscience and neuropsychiatrists still trying to sort through these fundamental questions of whether or not um, consciousness is like gravity, a, a an existential phenomenon that exists without us, mm-hmm. or whether or not it emerges from the complex neural networks that we have regardless regardless you aren't you aren't the the wave of thought or wave of feeling you are the bigger meta being that that experiences it well it's pretty fascinating that like if you a friend of mine lost her dad this year and he was able to pass away at home and he was just like this larger than life character. He was such a character. And she said, like the moment, you know, he was very ill, obviously. So there were parts of him that were shutting down, but he was still him until the moment when the consciousness left his mm. body. Mm. And then he was not him anymore. Right. That's it's amazing. Yeah. The next one, again, these are these are things that we just say and we remind and we also create an environment that is is reflective of the quality and the attribute which is to practice being compassionate with yourself and i i don't like i anytime i hear this or i'm the one that just said this there's also a part of me that like like a a, a red light goes off like sure. a, a spinning red light okay because I have ingrained within me this idea of high standards and not being too soft. But what I kind of mean by this is what we being compassionate with ourselves doesn't mean we don't have high standards. It doesn't mean we don't hold ourselves accountable. It doesn't mean we don't challenge ourselves to be responsible and to grow and thrive and do all the what we need to do. It means to me fundamentally that no one is flawless. The human condition is really complicated and really weird. Everyone makes a lot of mistakes and everyone deep down has some stuff that's kind of weird and contradictory. Mm -hmm. I would not trust anyone that isn't because I, I would just say it's buried deeper. And with all of that being said, I actually think that being compassionate with yourself is a very strategic, tactical, and necessary thing because I don't think you'll look at yourself honestly if you aren't. I don't think that people, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that people can really work to pull back the blinds and see what's happening on the inside if they they don't practice self-compassion. I don't think people will look. It's to be, it would be too shameful. It would be way too shameful. Yep. Way too shameful. Mm-hmm. Right? And I and this isn't to say like I think we all have like these deep dark secrets to hide. No. It's to say, man, life is weird. Human condition is weird. It's complicated. I I just there's there's man, there's dust, there's dirt in the corners and you're not going to look. Mm-hmm. If you 
if when you see what's in there sometimes, you're crippled by the shame. Mm-hmm. You'll mm-hmm. stop looking, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So it's it's one or the other. You'll turn, you turn in, in, and look away mm-hmm. or you'll have some amount of compassion and be able to investigate yourself more deeply by inquiring. And just like, I think, I think I agree with you. Like I talk about compassion a lot. I talk about self-compassion a lot. And even I feel like it's, it sounds squishy. It's, I always wonder, am I losing my male students, my male, my male listeners, because it is not really a virtue um, in, I don't know, male culture, but it, I think that just tacking onto what you're saying, it requires a lot of humility to be compassionate yeah. with yourself and with others. Even if you just think about like moving through your day and how irritated we can get with other people in a line, let's say, like at the UPS or all of these little things. This is something that with kids because they don't have a lot of humility. They're they're often not naturally compassionate. So you notice like our daughter, if someone does something annoying, she flashes out, right? And it's life, some of it is life experience. Some of it is being, you know, is really understanding, like you said, that none of us is perfect and we're all doing our best. So take a deep breath and just try to be a bit more empathic from moment to moment. Yeah. And this ties into the next, okay, uh, which is to practice nonviolence with your body and mind. Again, I, I think the first thing to clarify is when I think about nonviolence as a person in this world, or or more specifically as a student of yoga, um, I don't just think about it as avoiding injuries. I really don't. Um, I think about it as taking overtly taking care of this being inside and out. And and when it comes to to like really taking care of this being, that also doesn't mean like I just lay in the corner and put a thousand bolsters on me. It means that I want to nurture myself, but I also want to challenge myself. Mm-hmm. Like I I it, it, there is no doubt that a component of nonviolence is challenging our our body and mind to grow and to adapt what could be more more violent than not developing the ability to adapt and respond to the physical mental and emotional challenges that are there right so i don't want us to think about nonviolence as as a passive process of avoiding things i think that's I think that is um, not in understanding with the complexity of a living organism. We're a living organism. We have to challenge and grow and adapt. And we have to rest. And we have to be quiet. And we have to let go and surrender. But a component of being nonviolent, too, is managing to our best eliminating or at very least understanding negative self-talk. Mm-hmm. It's watching that movie inside of our head, that inner narrator, right? And it's saying, no, you don't get to talk like this. Like, if your inner narrator was actually talking out loud to someone else, it would almost never be okay, right? Yeah. It just wouldn't. 
um, you you're like inner narrator would be canceled nonstop. All of ours would be right. You're canceled. Yeah. So good. Time. So then good. This then then let's cancel it. Yeah. Or let's actually stop it. Let's be like yeah. enough. Right. Or I'll, I'll say to like my inner monologue all the time of like not now. <laughs> no, not we're not doing this again. Yeah. We're not doing this again. So it's also developing greater self esteem and greater self acceptance. So again, this is where I would say is like that movement towards internal nonviolence isn't just avoid, 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 pad all the walls and try to have a benign existence. Living systems don't grow under those conditions. Right. Right? They don't. So what so then what active measures mm-hmm. are we gonna take for our mind to be nonviolent, which in at least in some ways is to take radical self-responsibility to gr- to see how how our mind is involved in its own narrative and to be kind but also to hold it responsible for growth. It's yeah. really important that we hold ourselves responsible for growth. Good one. Um, this is just I'm, I'm holding my tongue because we're going to do another podcast and what you basically talked about we'll, I will expand on in our in another podcast. All right. Well, we're almost done. Yeah. Last two. Okay. Um, practice being truthful with yourself. And here's here's the example. Here's like the little example that I'm going to give. And I feel like I've given this example under different circumstances plenty of times. I had no idea before yoga how emotionally reactionary and stubborn I was. I had no idea how quick to frustration and irritation and like defense I was. Hmm. Um, I had no idea how kind of like quickly I would recoil at uh, something that was difficult for me in a way that was frustrating to me. But I saw all that pretty much in my first week of yoga. And that and I was really honest with myself. I was like, "Whoa. These like you have these very strong tendencies when you're not doing well in a situation to maybe overreact." Um I also have seen plenty of things as a yoga teacher and as a yoga student. I'm actually really good at, right? So so being honest with yourself like I don't know that we can see ourselves objectively. I don't think we can. But as objectively as you can, notice the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions. Notice the ego. Notice the stuff that plays out when you're on the mat. Mm-hmm. And just be honest with it. Just practice witnessing. Practice seeing yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm impressed that you stayed with it if you noticed that so quickly. It took me a lot longer to unravel all my weird flaws <laughs> I was just so Have you unraveled all of them? No, but I'm just saying like I wasn't as my first few weeks of yoga, I was still in the like oh, I'm good at this. I feel good in my body, therefore this is good for me. Yeah, no, this is this is polar opposite for right, me. Right, right. It'd be like if I dragged you along, I was like, here's some ice skates and this is a hockey stick. <laughs> no, I would be like here's a volleyball net and a volleyball. Yeah. <laughs> We haven't talked about my volleyball version in a long time. It hasn't come up in at least a <laughs> two or three years. podcasts. <laughs> All right, right. Last one. The last one is practice effort and surrender. I say this at the be- at like pretty much, I shouldn't say the end of every class. I would say at least 20% of classes that I teach 
towards the end of class, whether it's Shavasana or meditation, I'll remind people like anything that you feel you did a good job of and went well today, let it go. Anything that you feel frustrated with, irritated with, didn't do well at today, let it go. You did your best in the moment. And I I think this is so integral. I think this single thing is what intrigued me intellectually and emotionally about yoga pretty early on. This idea of, yes, you you are actually supposed to show up and be consistent time and time again and do not make excuses, do the work, period. Show up and then let go. Mm. Both. Not one or the other, right? Not show up and everything that goes well, like hold on to it forever and everything that doesn't go well, like hold on to it forever or, oh, you're having a rough day, don't show up. Nope, show up time and time again, be consistent, be persistent, do the work, period. And then let go. And time and time and time again, do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and this is is in so many ways the keys to long-term development in anything and everything. Show up, do your best, period. Then let go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, absolutely. Right. And this is overtly baked into the Bhagavad Gita. Too. I was just thinking. Yeah, like, I mean, this is as over- you know, right, right? Yeah, this, this is, is overtly baked in. I, I think that's the last. That maybe the last thing that I'll that I will reference is in this conversation. I didn't make a ton of references to you know. This is what Arjuna said. This is what Krishna said. This is what Patanjali said. This is what um, Shankara said. Um, I think the final little bit is when we're teaching, in my experience, I receive teachings best that come through the experience of my teacher, more so than these are kind of like the third party players. Like quoting, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. But, But that's for me personally. Yeah. And I think that I think for the listeners out there figuring out like how to how to introduce some of this stuff. Well, for some of you, you might just it might be more in your character, and you might feel more comfortable doing a reading, an overt reading of the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, Patanjali, maybe even moving outside of the yoga tradition into Buddha Dharma and so forth. I think that's still reasonable and appropriate. Or maybe you tell a story, or maybe you read a poem, or you just kind of say it through your words. Hey, listen, if that arm balance you just did was the most amazing thing in your life, take it in and let it go because it's over. Mm-hmm. If that arm balance made you feel really frustrated and irritated with yourself and incompetent because you couldn't do it, take that feeling and let go of it because it's over. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, it's up to the experience of the educator as to how to convey this content. And I think that if you do it in a in a genuine and sincere way, I, I think that it's gonna I think that it'll come through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, Jason. I have to think about like if I keep having you on this much, do I have to say like, welcome to Yoga Land with Jason Crandall and Andrea Ferretti? Nope. Okay. Nope. All right. That was the right answer. You still get the bag the byline. Okie dokie. 
All right, everyone, I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 287. Thanks so much for listening. And for those of you who sign up for beginners, we're excited to start with you. And if you'd like to get more information about the program, I've got a whole page of info and breaking it down, the curriculum, the dates, all that jazz at learn.jasonyoga.com slash beginners. And if you enjoy the podcast, it is always much appreciated if you could leave a rating and a review that just helps more people find the work that we're doing. All right, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice.